Previously on Fine Laws, Don't Judge Me. Yeah, everything that guy just said is, uh, bullshit. Thank you. Objection. Counsel's entire opening statement is argumentative. Sustained. Counselor's entire opening statement, with the exception of thank you, will be stricken from the record. Memphis wolves are on the prowl. Aw, oh, Della, come on. It's just a casserole. You got into Harvard Law? What, like it's hard? I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled to them. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! (laughs) And now, the dramatic conclusion to The Supreme Court Did What? Welcome to Fine Laws Don't Judge Me, the podcast about the real life of lawyering. I'm Laura Temme, and once again, I'm joined by Joe Fawbush. Hey, y'all. Allie Marshall. Hello. And Andy Leonati. Hi. Why are you laughing? <laughs> yeah, seriously, why are you laughing? It was my hello to... It was, it was definitely Allie. It was definitely Allie. What did I do? <laughs> I just said hello. You, like, went up an octave. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to sound like a nice person. (laughs) Well, don't start now. (laughs) So this week we're talking about some of the big Supreme Court decisions that have come out. This is part two of our our series on the Supreme Court did what? (laughs) Did you guys like that? I got no reaction from you guys. All right. I'll I'll quit my comedy career now and just stick to sort of hosting this show. (laughs) So we had several... Pretty big decisions come out since our last episode. Today, we're going to be focusing on the decisions regarding President Trump's financial records. And I'm sure we all have a lot of thoughts. So I guess let's just dive in. John Punt Roberts strikes again. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us how you really feel, Andy. He did kind of punt. I think it it was pretty in keeping with with Robert's court and, and kind of its modus operandi. But yeah, he did definitely kind of punt. I mean, we're not going to see the tax returns anytime soon. Um, but that being said, it was kind of a, a loss for President Trump, at least if you go by President Trump's Twitter feed. He definitely <laughs> considered it a loss. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I guess I, I didn't have any illusions that all of a sudden these records were going to be released as soon as this decision came out. You know, it was it was going to go back to the lower court's no matter what, really. I kind of enjoyed the approach of, like, chastising both branches of government for not being playing nicely. Yeah. Like, for <laughs> over 200 <laughs> years, you've been able to figure this out. It's like a parent putting the kids on timeout. Yeah, Roberts kind of gave Ron Chernow a run for his money in this opinion, giving us this long history lesson about uh, Aaron Burr's treason trial and all kinds of stuff. It was fun. Oh, that was interesting. <laughs> And timely, because Hamilton just came out on Disney Plus, so, you know. I'll say, you guys are uh, have been getting on me about, like, actually reading the opinions and not just the news stories. <laughs> I, don't and so think, this time, I don't think we actually so told time, you you have to do that. And so this time I tried, and, like, I get in one page, and it's like, Aaron Burr was Thomas J- And I'm like, you've got to be <laughs> freaking kidding me. Like, See, I thought that was the best part of the opinion. I liked it, yeah. I love the history lesson. I do think you might have picked the wrong one to 
to read from beginning to end. A, a couple of the earlier ones probably would have been a little better because I did. I got a little bored on this one too. Yeah, I think it also <laughs> says a lot that the, that the three of you are like, oh yeah, this was the best one, and I'm like. <sighs> I think that also says something, and not about me. <laughs> first, of, first of all, I just said that I got bored in this one, so don't lump me in with the other two. Oh wow! Throw us under the I'm bus. Just, look, <laughs> I'm I'm not trying to I'm not trying to throw you under the bus. I'm just, you know, don't don't paint all three of us with the same brush just because we're all attorneys. I mean. I enjoy reading these. I like the how they approach arguments. It teaches me something usually every time. But I will say, yeah, I don't read all opinions with bated breath, like every word <laughs> digesting. And, I mean, it's mostly a, a skim there. But um, but I do like to pull out these fun quotes. Mm-hmm. No, I'm I I loved it, and I'm completely unashamed. Like the night before this opinion <laughs> came out, I you know we all knew that it was going to come out on Thursday morning because yeah. it was released at about 10 a.m. And I woke up in the morning excited because I'm like, yes, I'm going to be able to read this in like an hour and I'm going to figure it out. So, you know, yeah, I, I may have a problem, I guess. is. I enjoyed in Vance um, the three arguments against being subject to the subpoena, the diversion, stigma and harassment. And mm-hmm. I just and I sh- probably shouldn't be laughing at those, but they were the stigma especially was funny. To oh, me. yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing. And I was wondering if anybody else was having flashbacks to my Lenny Dykstra segment. <laughs> no? Totally. Right. <laughs> Maybe I'll just I don't want to get too political. So I'll, I'll like, leave it at that. You need but, no help from us. Right. It, it felt a little bit like a libel proof <laughs> plaintiff issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll just all leave it there. I don't know. I, I, I more and more with these opinions respect the job that the court is doing. Um, and, you know, like so again, I like to pull these quotes out. But one in Vance was since the earliest days of the Republic, every man has included the president of the United States. And that's I thought that was a really poignant line. And you, you are not above the law. Yes. You are subject to it, just like all of our citizens are. Call back to qualified immunity as well with that. Yeah. You guys, everyone who's worked very hard to make the to try and make the executive branch like a non-coequal branch of government can suck eggs, pound sand, kick rocks. <laughs> Regardless of political party, honestly. Yes. I mean, presidents from both have tried. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And noted activist judges Sam Alito and Clarence Thomas they're on a roll these days. <laughs> Some real support for textualism from them in these dissents. One one thing about the dissents, though, I mean, in Vance, like nobody agreed that Trump just has absolute immunity from a criminal subpoena. So the court was unanimous in that, and that was good to see because whenever you see something that's this important of a case, anytime you can get some kind of unanimity is good. And in previous cases, like when this happened with uh, Clinton, the court was unanimous in saying Clinton had to comply. So it was nice to see that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I agree with you, though, Andy. I mean, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot of support in the Constitution for Alito's argument. Um, but at least, at least there was some agreement. <laughs> Alit- yeah, yeah. Alito's doing a very poor man's impression of 
of Scalia at this point. Yeah. I can hear ju- I can hear Alito's just impatient sighing in every single thing that he writes for basically <laughs> like why don't you agree with me? Yeah. We haven't actually gotten to the holding of the two, so we should probably just just quick talk about the holding. So just for our listeners who haven't read the opinion, um, which doesn't include Andy now, which <laughs> nicely done, Andy. That didn't come out patronizing at all. I read. <laughs> Andy. <laughs> yeah, so the, the holding in Vance, it was a criminal subpoena issued by the Manhattan District Attorney, Cy Vance. Uh, he was seeking tax records from President Trump. President Trump's argument was that he was absolutely immune while in office from having to comply with a criminal subpoena from a state court. The judges roundly rejected that argument. Uh, Two justices wanted uh, the district attorney to have to show a heightened standard of need. So basically prove that they needed to get the subpoena, uh, you know, right now before President Trump left office instead of waiting till after he left office or, you know, show that the subpoena was kind of tailored to, to meet a specific goal. Uh, but the majority rejected that as well. And they just said, no, um, based on kind of 200 years of precedent, presidents do have to do this. And, and all of these arguments uh, don't quite cut it. So there's no heightened standard of need. There's no absolute immunity. And President Trump will have to comply that being said, he can still go to lower court and contest it on other grounds. Uh, and the president's attorney, Jay Sekulow, has already said that they will contest this uh, subpoena on other grounds as well. So it's still going to be fought off in in lower courts. Um, so, we, so we won't see it anytime soon, and, and neither will Cy Vance. But. So explain this to me, Joe, like I'm an idiot, because I am. This will <laughs> that is not true, but okay. <laughs> the president will inevitably lose in a district court. He will then appeal it to the appellate court. He will lose, and then the Supreme Court will probably just not take it up because it's just then a matter of a criminal subpoena. Or what's what do you foresee happening? Yeah, I mean, I I definitely think they're going to contest it. Um, you know, as as for how likely it is that. President Trump's argument, whatever it may be, is going to win. You know, I mean, I don't know because we haven't really seen anything about that. Um, I do think that it'll be an uphill battle, but based just on kind of history, so long as President Trump is in office, he is going to fight having to release it. So I'm assuming he's going to appeal as much as possible. And it Um, will come back to the Supreme Court and... John Roberts will inevitably kick it back to the lower court again and will be <laughs> and will be in a hellscape <laughs> loop. <laughs> yeah, I mean I don't want to predict cuz it's a little too early to predict, but yeah, I could see I could see the Supreme Court not taking it up um if they've already kind of said their piece. Okay. Um, and by the time that happens, who knows where we'll be. Um and you know, they they could work out a deal. Um, the two parties, you know, to maybe Trump gives them a, a few tax returns or something like that, but um, or in a promise for, you know, not. I'm sorry, I'm laughing. I don't see. I just yeah. In what world is that? Well, happening? you know, they did they did reach an agreement um, about not enforcing the subpoena while they waited for the Supreme Court to weigh in. So they did they did kind mm-hmm. of strike a deal 
earlier. Um, you know, so so it's possible. I don't know, but yeah, I I think yeah, there's no end in sight, really. Um, more to come on this one. It's the worst worst sequel to the Neverending Story ever. <laughs> yeah, the Supreme Court just kind of said, "Okay, here's the new test. Off with you." You know, <laughs> so yeah. Uh, so the second case that was released shortly after the Vance, um, what involved congressional subpoenas, there were multiple congressional subpoenas, basically looking for the same information that the Manhattan DA was looking for, uh, his tax returns and some other financial information. Uh, this subpoena was issued to Mazars USA, which is President Trump's uh, accounting firm. And the issues were a little bit different here. Um, Congress has the right to subpoena pretty much anyone, so long as it's related to a legitimate legislative purpose. And this is where Ali was talking about um, the Chief Justice was kind of chastising both parties, saying, like, you know, in 200 years, you both have been able to figure this out. Why is this coming to the court now? Like, we don't really want to get involved, but since we are, we're going to create a new standard for when Congress can subpoena a sitting president. And he had four different kind of tests or, or, or measures to weigh uh, when a court decides whether that the, a congressional uh, committee can subpoena a president. Uh, it was a non-exhaustive list, so courts have some leeway to decide what they want to do. Um, but this, too, was punted down. Um, so, yeah, this will also, again... You know, they were consolidated cases, so they're going to be sent back to different lower courts, and this will be held up in in litigation again uh, because lower courts are going to have to weigh this request under new standards, and uh, Congress will have to decide whether they want to amend any of these subpoenas, maybe narrow it, or seek only certain records um, just to try to improve their chances. So again, no end in sight. Um but overall, both cases, you know, they weren't a complete loss for the president. But on the other hand, um, we are definitely not going to see them before the election. And that could be considered a victory. Um, you know, it depends on President Trump's motivations for not showing his tax returns. Um, if there's some kind of criminal underpinning to his tax returns, and this is the reason why he's fighting it, it's not good news for him because... They'll probably find it eventually, but if it's just a political calculation, then it seems to have been okay for him because we're not going to see it anytime soon. Mm -hmm. I was just going to share my line that I believe is the written equivalent of a mic drop from this <laughs> yes, part of the I opinion, which is talking about the list that they give as far as considerations that need to be evaluated with the subpoena power. But then he states other considerations may be pertinent as well. One case every two centuries does not afford enough experience for an exhaustive list. It's like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> right. burn. And Robert's out. <laughs> uh, anyway. am, am I misremembering that, like, the power of Congress to issue subpoenas can only have, like, a legislative purpose? Because I think of a lot of the, like, showboating committee hearings that, like, a House Oversight Committee does throughout the years, uh, like the baseball steroids hearings. 
with like the George Mitchell report and everything. And it's was all that was all of that just done at the like at the like, is that a difference between like the com- a committee just asking someone to appear and testify and turn over evidence versus issuing a subpoena to get that information? I think in I mean, in this opinion, the Supreme Court does outline like really you could go pretty far to demonstrate a legislative purpose. And so they're, they're setting forth some parameters for how you evaluate that. Um, Because arguably any of those things could have some sort of legislative purpose. They could figure out a way to, to sort of back into it. And I suppose the Supreme court is admonishing them to be careful about how they do that, especially when it comes to the executive, because it's co-equal branch of government. But in those cases, it wouldn't be as much of an issue because it's not the president. Okay. Because a lot of, like, congressional investigations and such do not end up with any sort of, like, legislative outcome or anything. So I was yeah, I was, I was hung up on that. I think they just can't be directly connected to law enforcement efforts. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Yeah, and I think uh, Roberts mentioned that, actually, in the opinion about how, you know, the one thing that Congress cannot do is do law enforcement. But, you know, if you think about the power that Congress has, I mean, they could create a law on just about anything, you know. I mean, they could create a law regulating steroid use in professional sports if they wanted to. Um, and, you know, it, it's not the outcome. There doesn't have to be a law that's passed. And, you know, they just have to say, hey, we're we're considering mm-hmm. this as as a potential place that we could pass legislation. So yeah, if if you step back and and look at it broadly enough, just about anything is justified. Um, But most people are not the president. And so, you know, it's a little different when you're, when you're going, most people can be the president. (laughs) Which is the point point of the first of of the Vance ruling. (laughs) Are you announcing that you're running? I humbly seek your support. Leonati 2024. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. This fall. <laughs> Write me in this fall. <laughs> Just my, I usually, I, I used to always write in my dad for every like uh, judicial retention election on my absentee <laughs> ballot in Illinois. It'd be like yes or no. And then like write in, I would be like no. And then write in my dad. Shout out to Dale Leonetti. <laughs> Ah, we've never, never quite gotten over the hump there. <laughs> so this week also saw a landmark decision in McGirt versus Oklahoma, which was um, asking the court to determine whether um, land treaties promising um, an Indian reservation for the uh, and, and how that affected criminal law and the enforcement on a state level or federal level. Um, and the Supreme Court came down on the side of the uh, Native American who was arguing that he should have been tried under federal law and not state for his crimes, which occurred on the protected lands promised to his tribe. So that was the outcome of that. Um, Again, some great lines uh, and points from the Supreme Court where, you know, basically challenging the government on all the promises broken to the, to the tribes Mm -hmm. and, and trying to make it right where they could. Um, wishes don't make for laws is what, what the opinion said. And, uh, saving the political branches, the embarrassment of 
disestablishing a reservation is not one of our constitutionally assigned prerogatives. Who wrote, who wrote the yeah. opinion? Justice Gorsuch actually took this. Oh, down. that's right. It was Gorsuch. Okay. Yeah. See? Um, I read it, but nice. I don't always pay attention to that. <laughs> I have a line that I want to say, too, from him. This is classic. It's, uh, unlawful acts performed long enough and with sufficient vigor are never enough to amend the law. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So he's, it was basically like, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you you made this treaty. Uh, yep. Stick to it, guys. Big ups, mm-hmm. big ups for living up to your obligations. Um, yeah, and another one was so it's no matter no matter how many other promises to a tribe the federal government has already broken, if Congress wishes to break the promise of a reservation, it must say so. It was also well written. Yeah. Gorsuch yeah. is on a, on fire. He's, this he's year. on fire. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's, he's really going or for his it clerk- this term. His clerk does a good job too, probably. I'm <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What? Clerks, clerks, plural, probably. Well, no. For the purpose of criminal law, it effectively renders like half of Oklahoma uh, subject to federal law. Yep. Which is pretty wild, but you know what? Again, yeah, suck it, Congress. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this, and this will have an impact. I mean, my home state, South Dakota, is pretty much half reservation as well. I don't know if these issues are mm-hmm. ripe there, but that will be have an impact on all the states where, or all the areas where um, where that's an issue. So a lot of reevaluation happening on the state level. Yeah, after, yeah, decades and decades and decades of broken promises, here is one promise kept and hopefully the first of more. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, that's true. I wonder if it'll, ha- I mean, I'm sure it will have an impact on other areas of law addressing um, issues of, of native lands, too, mm-hmm. um, and past promises. Black Hills comes to mind. That'll be interesting. Yeah. Uh, so we also, we've had a lot of big cases come out since our last episode. Um, a couple other religious exemption cases that came out, um, basically saying that Title VII doesn't apply to religious institutions. Um and we get into the ministerial exemption, which is a fun little piece of, I guess, judicial precedent. And so one of the cases, Our Lady of Guadalupe School, was trying to figure out if teachers who primarily teach on secular subjects are protected by anti-discrimination laws. And the court basically said no. They said, you know, you teach at a, at a religious school, so they are not subject to Title VII. Sorry. Thanks for playing. Yeah, this basically means like any private religious school employee is a quote minister, right? Sure, sounds like it. Yeah, football coach, nurse, Mm -hmm. cafeteria worker. Yeah, because these teachers didn't. I mean, they taught religion, but only they weren't religion teachers. They were. It was like religion was a part of their curriculum. But they signed on to uphold the values of yeah. the institution okay. that they, that's the argument at least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But one, yeah, one was filed, uh, was suing for age discrimination and one because she wanted to take a leave for breast cancer treatment. Mm-hmm. And they fired her. Yeah. Good job, school. Mm. That's, <laughs> <laughs> it's icky that it's, these are the cases in which they're upheld. Yeah. Yeah, and it, you know the other interesting thing about this is, of course, um, 
the the recent opinion in Bostock that just included mm-hmm. LGBTQ workers as protected under Title VII. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Justice Gorsuch did write that you know we're not necessarily talking about uh, religious institutions, and this case comes down, and now basically um, any religious institution can basically say that as many employees as possible are ministers and and are responsible Mm -hmm. for teaching children about their religion. You know, um, Andy, your example of a football coach would be an interesting case, but you know, you could see them doing that. I I don't think cafeteria workers would qualify, but, but uh, you know, maybe coaches and, and Mm -hmm. other people Um, and they will not be held responsible for, for abiding by title seven, including LGBTQ workers. So, for people who were disappointed in the Bostock decision based on, on religious or, or moral objections, um, you know, this is kind of the, the conservative justices delivering a win for, for those uh, parties interested in this outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get if, uh, if you could argue that a athletic coach who leads his team in prayer before each practice or game or anything like that, all of a sudden do they qualify as a minister under the mm-hmm. under this, but they didn't under even this require, expanded definition. They didn't even require any religious instruction. It was just no. this signing on to the values basically oh, okay. that the institution mm-hmm. believes in or whatever, you know, affiliation they have. So yeah. So I think yeah. that fa- I mean it's, I arguably I think that falls under it. Well, you, anybody. you better read that statement then before you take a job. <laughs> yep. I guess. Yeah, it is it is very broad. And I it's just it's another decision by this court that generally will side with religious organizations that has come up, you know, time and time again um, over the last several years. So, I guess this one wasn't super surprising, although I do feel like it is a little overbroad. Yeah, it's not too surprising. I guess Next, we'll be broadening the definition to include just any business that has a religious objection to Title Seven. Yeah. In a way, we're already getting that in the Little Sisters of the Poor case, where yeah. we've got employers being able to opt out of contraceptive coverage based on religious objections. So it might be headed that way anyway. Yeah, and this one was kind of... This one also seemed kind of inevitable, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so again, just to briefly jump in here and, and kind of uh, outline the case. Uh, in, in this one, this involved a uh, so-called contraceptive mandate uh, that's as part of the Affordable Care Act where employers are required to uh, provide certain methods of contraception for employees uh, without cost to them. Um there was already an exception that that employers could get, uh, but the Trump administration in 2018 wanted to expand that to uh, include, uh, you know, private schools and uh, for-profit employers, and the Supreme Court here said that yeah, uh, you know the. HRSA, which is the Health Resources and Services Administration, which creates these regulations, uh, has the power to create broader exemptions. And so 
that's that's what they did. It was a seven to two decision. Justice Ginsburg and Sotomayor dissented in both the Little Sisters of the Poor and uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe. Those were they both dissented in both of them. Justice Kagan and, and Breyer concurred in the judgment, which is why it was a seven to two decision. But they would have approached it differently. They basically said. Um, you know, the statute is unclear, and so we're going to give deference to the federal agency to, you know, interpret it how it wants. Um, but Justice Kagan did note that, you know, just because they're giving deference doesn't necessarily mean that the regulation passes the uh reasonableness standard. So uh, this is a, another one that we could see more litigation on uh, because, you know, you could still contest the regulations as being arbitrary and capricious. And and so there's a chance that this will continue to be fought out in lower courts. Um, but yeah, for now, um, employers can basically get a, a religious or a moral exception uh, to provide contraceptive care for their employees um, with basically very little effort. Um, I think Justice Ginsburg noted that, uh, you know, over 100,000 female employees might be affected by this and lose their coverage. There are alternatives uh, to get uh, contraceptive care under uh, the ACA, um, but it does kind of create an extra hurdle. So this is definitely one that was closely watched because there there's a lot of people who are very passionate about this issue, understandably. And so this was kind of one that, that people are watching closely as well. Write your laws more clearly, Congress. Stop leaving it to the <laughs> stop leaving it to the regulatory state to <laughs> interpret. Stop making all your laws directed just directing agencies to promulgate regulations related to such and such. Andy, I love this. You're you're fighting back against executive authority and you're fighting against uh, an expanded uh, federal state. That, that's fantastic. <laughs> I love it. We are, we are on the same page. I, I, spent met, I spent several years on the Hill watching Congress just abdicate responsibility for actually creating laws that actually mean anything. Everything was just directing directing federal agencies to just create regulations and it's it's lazy and then you end up with you know presidents just trading executive orders back and forth so it's, mm -hmm. and we end up in the the hellscape that we are now yeah that's very true because with with this regulation um as soon as a new administration gets into office exactly they can absolutely just reverse this yep. so yeah mm -hmm. there there's no certainty with this whatsoever and if if uh, joe biden wins that probably is one of the first things that he'll do is mm -hmm. change this all up so yeah it doesn't make for a lot of consistency um and well, and, and like you said joe a lot of we've had a lot of really big decisions come out of the supreme court this term but a lo in a lot of cases the story's not over. You know, it's going back to the lower courts. It's going back to regulatory bodies. All of, a lot of these issues we're going to have to keep watching. Andy, it sounds like you got a lot more out of your time on the Hill than I did. <laughs> <laughs> the big thing I learned, Allie, was that I hated it. <laughs> I was just going to say, I made copies and I socialized, and then I learned that I never want to be in politics like that. <laughs> 
<laughs> it was just, it was so, it was so eye-opening to, yep. to be like, this is where I want to go. And then I go and I'm like, all right, I'm going to be here. I've already done it. I'm in, I'm in my 20s. I'm going to live here the rest of my life. This is it. And then yep. like three years later, I'm like, well, screw this. And yep. then I held on, and then I held on for a couple more years. Oh, you did. I did. A, I was a summer intern and that was it. <laughs> that was all I needed of the eye opening. It's it, it's crazy out there on the East Coast. That's right. <laughs> well, and people. Could we sound any more Midwestern right now? It's pretty wild out there. They talk. They talk <laughs> so fast. <laughs> Yeah, on that note, that's our Supreme Court discussion for the day. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be talking about the remote bar exam. Not having enough time to thoroughly review case notes in a brief before filing isn't an option. Legal professionals like you make the time, even if that means pulling long hours and late nights. Well, Westlaw Edge just released a new feature on QuickCheck that will give you that time back. QuickCheck Quotation Analysis is an at-a-glance report that shows differences between case quotes in an uploaded document and the actual case language on Westlaw Edge. Use Quotation Analysis to find weaknesses or inaccuracies in your opponent's documents that you could use to your advantage, and to ensure your quotes are error-free, because accuracy is everything. To learn more, visit tr.com slash quickcheck. Welcome back. And for our final segment today, we wanted to talk a little bit about something that three of us have experience in, the bar exam. Um, this year, I know. Hey, I took, something I took the all, GRE. That is oh, not the same yeah. thing as the bar exam. Not the I same, agree. but yeah. <laughs> uh, the bar exam is a, uh, a, a hell that I hope to never, ever experience anything close to that again. Yeah. But the second bar exam of this year is going to be quite a bit different from the first uh, because of concerns relating to the coronavirus and COVID-19. We have a few states doing something that I never thought would happen. They, are, they have decided to hold the exam remotely. And I think, I think that was something that on an earlier episode, one of you asked me if I thought that that would happen. And I said, absolutely not. Because, I mean, it's a huge change given that Normally, this exam requires people to basically requires people to camp out at a convention center for two to three days with nothing but a couple of pencils and crippling anxiety. Yeah, I would say if COVID is the death of the bar exam, like that's the one casualty I could live with for all future lawyers. Oh, absolutely. I I can live with that. (laughs) I agree. Yeah. Um, Or at the very least, it, it very well might have a huge impact on how the test is administered. Um, like I said, so far we have 11 states plus probably California. They're kind of waffling about it a little bit right now. Um, a few states are holding a remote exam in July and a couple others have pushed it to October but are still planning to hold it remotely. And it will be really interesting to see how that goes. Yeah, I just, well, I don't need to go on my tangent about the bar exam in general, but yeah, I'm glad that they're being flexible about how, uh, you know, law students or graduates rather are able to take it. And, and so they can practice because obviously it's already hard to get a job. It's hard to figure out what you're going to do after law school if you don't already have a plan and, and to be mm-hmm. um, impeded from doing that is 
uh, just an additional stress I'm sure many could do without. Mm -hmm. Is your proposal just successfully graduating from law school should be enough? I think there are standards that they need to set for for law schools, which they already do. They need to mm -hmm. be maybe more diligent about that, about how lawyers are trained. But then I, it, there's nothing about the bar exam that prepares you for the practice of law. Quite honestly, sometimes no. there's nothing in law school that prepares you for the practice of law, unless your law school does it right and does practical courses. But all it does is prove that you can take a really crappy test or hard test mm -hmm. um, and pass it. Like that, it doesn't. There's nothing I remember from the bar exam except for how do I successfully do this thing, mm -hmm. but none of it uh, do I use when I or did I use when I was in practice? Not not anything. Yeah, and one of the um, one of the exams that I'm interested to see is how Nevada has decided to hold their bar exam um, because they've decided to make it open book, which oh, wow. realistically yes. is what the practice yes. of law is like. Yeah. Um, yep. which, and, and I mean, uh, this, of course they're I believe they're doing the Nevada test is p primarily state focused. And so they're doing eight, um, eight ex essay exams that are focused on state law. And so <laughs> yes, it's open book, but at the same time, if someone's going to be checking their notes the whole time, they're only going to get a third of it done. Y yeah. So a, a lot of the studying still needs to be there, but I do think it will be interesting to see how that format works because that's how it is in practice. You know, someone comes in, yep. they tell you their problem and you say, okay, I'm going to look up a couple things and I'll get back to you. And so I think that would be a, a format that makes a lot more sense. Also apprenticeship. I know, you know, I mean, me medical students go on to have different types of whatever residency fellowship, whatever mm -hmm. they have, depending on their specialty the law should be no different, quite honestly, in yeah. my opinion. Um, but they still have, they have to take board exams too. Doc yeah, that's true. Doctors that's true. and vets. And I mean, they, mm -hmm. they also agree that those are crappy. Yeah. <laughs> I can't speak to what those are, what they, what they measure, but I can tell you the bar exam isn't measuring. I, I guess maybe they think it's measuring my knowledge of the law, my application of the law. I don't exactly know, but the practice mm -hmm. certainly not. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. There's nothing. Well, and certainly, and it certainly doesn't measure quality legal writing either because you don't have time right. to provide quality no. legal writing on that exam. You can't. No. I mean, I'm pretty sure I made up law and then applied it. I did. I definitely <laughs> made up law. I remember. I made up real estate law and I passed on the first try. Ah, so, you yeah. hear that bar exam, people? You <laughs> suck. <laughs> Your test is a joke. Well, I will say just for, for any law students who may be listening, that is actually the right thing to do is if you don't know the law, just make it up and then apply the yep. law according to what you can't you remember. So that I'm, if they haven't taken any yep. mm -hmm. prep courses, um, that's what they tell you to do so that, yeah. yeah. And that's, that is an exact yeah, example absolutely. of, you know, I mean, it, it sort of measures because yet, you know, you have to learn how to apply the law, but it's also an example of like, you know, it's not about memorizing facts. The practice of law is is a practice and a skill. Mm -hmm. It's not a base set of knowledge. Um, so is there a way to change the bar mm -hmm. to, to make it more focused on that? Or is the bar even necessary? You know, there's a, there's a lot of talk about revisiting the LSAT. There's revisiting the bar, even revisiting the way law schools mm -hmm teach. Um, and I think those are, are very worthwhile mm -hmm. conversations to have. And yeah, I agree with both of you that, you know, if, if the bar has to dramatically change or ends 
because of the outbreak, you know, that's, that's um, just fine by me too. Well, it's just like one of those things that we've all learned through this process. It's like you think you need, but then when you're forced to reevaluate it, you're like, well, you know, mm-hmm. you know, like my, yeah. my nice clothes. <laughs> or- <laughs> <laughs> Do I need them? No, I'm just at home now. Yeah, I, I am really interested to see how all of this impacts the bar exam going forward. Um, like a lot of the, the remote exams are dropping the multiple choice portion which I, I believe that a lot of the essays are still using the uh, multi-state bar exam topics. So mm-hmm. if any law students out there still study those topics because <laughs> they will likely come up on the essay portion, but yeah, they're eliminating the multiple choice, which I think makes sense. Once again, you know, no one's going to come in your office and say, here's my situation. Should I do A, B, C, or D? You know. Yeah. Oh God, I'm having flashbacks of it now. I know. <laughs> I'm sweating just thinking about this. <laughs> I like. I'm a fast test taker only because I don't second guess myself, right? Because then mm-hmm. I then I I usually end up making the wrong choice. But I I finished it early. I also finished the professional responsibility exam early, and was like <laughs> freaking out because I'm like, well, that's not good. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's yeah. Not I finished fine. a little bit early too because I yeah I got to a point where I was like, if I don't know it, I don't. If I don't know it now, I'm not going to know it in 20 minutes. So yeah, you know, and I just want this to enough. be over. With. I got my license. Here we are. So yeah, <laughs> and you're still working here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I found where I belonged. It's okay. Yeah. (laughs) Well, before any of us break down from remembering our own bar exam experiences or bring up any of those feelings in anyone else, we'll wrap it up for the day. Uh, Thank you for joining us on this episode of Fine Laws Don't Judge Me. Check the show notes for any related content as well as lp.finelaw.com. Please rate and review our show and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks for listening.